Okay, so what is at the centre of something matters. Or what, I had to do this one because um, I found one where, like, where they're like the dead and they're kind of mashed into the bread, but like I actually wanted to bomb a little bit, so I thought that one was a bit better. Um, okay. Uh, whatever is at the centre of something does affect everything that's around it, doesn't it? Um, and earlier on, Gareth asks the question, what is at the centre of your life? Uh, what is a thing that influences the decisions that you make? Um, what is the thing that, um, that drives you? What is the thing that affects the way that maybe you react to stuff? And that is the question that we're going to be looking at um, a little bit today. Um, it's what is at the heart of our passage? Uh, what is, at the, is this question, what is at the centre? We're going to be delving back into Acts this morning and um, we will see just how much it matters as we see her heated discussion turn into a court case that results in a murder because two very different ways of seeing the same thing uh, because of two different opinions, different beliefs, believing that something different is at the centre of something. Uh, I wonder whether when you strip back your answer to Gareth's question earlier, whether at the heart of it lies either of these two positions, Jesus or ourselves. Uh, although, um, first of all, in, in the passage that we've read, uh, we meet a guy called Stephen, who, at the centre of everything, sees Jesus Christ. And then we get these other guys, the Sanhedrin, the religious court of the day, who, at the centre of everything, uh, despite their religious appearance, put themselves right in the middle of how the world works and how to know God. Uh, although this is a debate that's, been, uh, that's happened over 2,000 years ago, it's one that we can enter today and it's one that we must think about. Because if Jesus is at the centre of your life, that makes life very different for you. And if Jesus isn't at the centre of your life, well, that's important to think about as well. So, the case. It all kicks off with this man called Stephen. And we met Stephen last week. He was one of the seven men chosen to help care for the church. And although he was given this responsibility, it's clear from what we've read today that he's been telling people about Jesus. Uh, right at the start, in 6 verse 8, it says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Uh, but not everyone liked what they heard and what they saw. You might feel that some of the things I've already said this morning are jarring with you. They're making you uncomfortable. The passage continues to say, Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue. Uh, these men argued with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or against the spirit by which he spoke. It was frustrating because they didn't want to hear it. What, they, what Stephen was saying was offensive to them, and they just wanted him to shut up. But they couldn't stand against him. They couldn't silence him. So, verse 11, we read that they cheated. Uh, they secretly persuaded people to, um, to say that they heard Stephen blaspheming. That's lying against God and against Moses. So they stirred at the people on these false charges, and Stephen is seized, and the court is convened, and the false witnesses march in, and they testify in verse 13. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. Uh, that's the temple. And against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and change the customs Moses handed down to us. This argument very quickly escalates from a confrontation in the street to a law court. And it's all because of what Jesus has been teaching about Jesus of Nazareth that has got everyone so riled. The charges are read out. Um, and they, and they are brought by the false witnesses and they centre on two important areas of Jewish life. The first one centres on the temple, the holy place. Uh, now the temple is the place where the Jews would go to offer sacrifice for their sins. Uh, and a place that they would go to meet with God. Uh, it's an important place. Uh, it's a place that in fact God told them to build. And the charge against Stephen is this. That he's been saying that Jesus would destroy that place. And then the second charge... How to get um, leveled against Stephen is this. It concerns the law, uh, that's the law of Moses, um, saying that, G- that Stephen has been teaching things that are contrary to the law, um, that are against the law. So the temple is where you go to meet with God, uh, to offer sacrifice for your sin. And the law told you how to live with God, and how to live in a way that would enable you to have a relationship with God. The law is prized, it's, it's precious. Mm. But it's slightly ironic, isn't it, that um, for, for people who claim to hold the law as something so precious, that actually they've had to break it to bring these charges against Stephen. They've had to bring false, wi- false testimony. People have been presented as false witnesses. And I think that gives you a little bit of a clue into the heart um, of these people and exactly what's going on. Well, I wonder for you whether you've ever found yourself in a similar sort of situation, whether you've ever found yourself either being outrightly rightly accused of something that you had nothing to do with, or whether your words have been twisted or embellished uh, and a a situation has been twisted enough that you've been accused of something that you never actually said, you never actually did, you never meant, but you had to answer for it. Well, I don't know about you, but the natural response for me, at least, is this, is to immediately deny it, to say, "Uh, I only said this and not that. I I didn't mean this, I meant that. Or even, do you know what? I wasn't even there. I don't, I don't know anything about this. I've got no idea what you're talking about. Well, the surprising thing about Stephen is this, is that although these charges are false, whether they're embellished truth or just outright lies, he answers them. And he does quite a thorough job of it as well, isn't it? Didn't he? The reading this morning was pretty long. As Stephen covers the most of Old Testament history. But why? Why does he bother? Well, the clash has come about um, because of what each believed to be the centre of life and knowing God. Stephen believes that the temple and the law all centres on Jesus Christ. Uh, But for these guys, the Sanhedrin, despite their religious appearance, it is all about what they do, about where they go. Those are the beliefs that Stephen has challenged through his actions and teachings about Jesus. It's not simply... uh, that it, that it isn't us anymore, but it is never has been us. It's always been about Jesus Christ. That's what Stephen's saying. The temple and the law have always been about him. They've always pointed to him. Uh, so although the witnesses are false, there is something to explain. Uh, and Stephen answers his charges by giving us a select history of God's people. Uh, four key moments, four key people uh, within Israel's history. Something that Sanhedrin would have known and you'd assume that they would know better than Stephen did, being as they are the Sanhedrin, they are the religious court, and he's not in it. But Stephen is about to show them, and us, that he understands it far better than they do, 
because he understands who is at the heart of it. So let's look to how he answers the first charge that gets, and that's the one concerning the temple. And now the Sanhedrin saw the temple as the only place you could go to meet with God. So let's have a look at a passage and see what Stephen's point is. And to help us to do that, I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you. Look at them. Okay, you guys are now a team, and we're going to have a little bit of a quiz. And the answers are all in the Bible in front of you, so you need to be looking down, okay? Okay, so to help us see what Stephen's point is, first question is this, listen up. I'm afraid there's no prizes. Um, I know. Um, the first question is this. Um, Stephen takes his accusers, first of all, to chapter 7, uh, to Abraham, which is in chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. If you, look at, if you look down there, and the first question is this. Where was Abraham when he first met God? Uh, when he first met God? Yeah? Mesopotamia. I like the hand up, that was good. Yes. So, Mesopotamia, okay? Now, there's a clue on the screen to help you with the next question, okay? How close was Jerusalem and the temple to Mesopotamia? By, I'm going to accept, you know, by... Thousand kilometres? Pardon? Seven hundred kilometres? My answer's in miles, I'm afraid, sorry. Five hundred miles. Okay, well. Five hundred and twelve. Three hundred. Thousand miles. Okay, so there's a few um, there's a few suggestions. When I look this up on uh, the internet, so I'm not quite sure whether this is completely true, but the internet told me that uh, the distance between Mesopotamia and Jerusalem is 6,000 miles. I know. I didn't believe that either. But it's quite far. That's the point. Yeah, maybe. Because I did think 6,000 miles is quite far. But, um, you know, I'm... Pardon? There's, all, there's a potential that happened to me. But it's quite... It's, it, the, the point is, the point is, is that it's far away. Um, in fact, by this point, to the point where Abraham um, is about, the temple hasn't even been built yet. Um, can you see what Stephen is beginning to get at? He's beginning to get at this. This God doesn't seem to be restricted to the, to the temple, does he? To one place. Well, he moves on to Joseph, the second individual um, that we're going to look at. And in verses 9 to 10, so that's where we are for our third question of the quiz. Where was Joseph when God met with him? Egypt. Egypt. Brilliant. Okay. And then Stephen... <laughs> it's quite far away, I don't know. <laughs> then Stephen takes to Moses, who um, he's accused of speaking against... And um, I want to ask you this question, so keep looking down. Where was, where was Moses when he was born? Egypt. Egypt. Moses, he lived there for 40 years before running away to Midian after killing an Egyptian. And he lives in Midian for another 40 years. And it's in Midian that something very significant happens in the history of God's people and for Stephen's argument. And verse 30 says this. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, the place you are standing is holy ground. Did you see it? Uh, not only did God reveal himself to Moses in Midian, uh, but in Midian, miles away from the promised land, miles away from the temple, God meets with Moses, and the ground was holy ground, because God was there. It's not just the temple that's holy ground, but it's anywhere that God is. And some of the most significant moments in Israel's history happened when God met with his people, and he wasn't in the temple, and he wasn't even in the promised land. As good as these things are, they do not restrict him. All right, our final question is this. Stephen sticks forward a bit further on in Israel's history to King Solomon. Now, Solomon is really important because Solomon is the guy who actually built the temple. All right, so question five. What I want you to do is I want you to look down at verses 48 to 50. Solomon has built the temple, a house of the Lord. But just skip through those verses and see if you can see it. What is the killer point, the smackdown argument that Stephen makes? Can you speak it out? Brilliant. The Lord doesn't even live there. Solomon, who built the temple, he knew that. Uh, and Isaiah, who is quoted here, he understood that as well. Heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool, God lives everywhere. Now, the temple isn't an, important, isn't an unimportant place, but you have to understand that if you misunderstood, um, that you're going to misunderstand God if you think that he lives in a house, if it, that he's restricted to one place. And don't get me wrong, the temple isn't nothing. It's been at the heartbeat of God's people for centuries by this point. But the temple and the law both point to something else, to someone else. Uh, God has a proven track record of not being restricted to the temple as the place where he goes to meet with his people and where his people come to meet with him. And the sacrifices that were made there, they were never sufficient to bring you into relationship with God. They pointed to a greater sacrifice that was needed, a greater temple. And the temple points to Christ and it, his sacrifice that allows you relationship with God. It was at his death that the curtain split in two and the separation between God and man disappeared. We can know God. All you need to do is to go to Jesus to have a relationship with God. And you can do that anywhere because God is anywhere. It fits with Israel's history. What Stephen is saying is that Jesus doesn't destroy the temple. He does more than that. He replaces it. And it is through him that we have a relationship with God. And it's always through, been through him, through his sacrifice, working backwards in time, that we've ever been able to know God and have a relationship with him. It's always been through Christ. It's not that the Jews were about them, all about themselves and then Christ came along a little bit later on. Jesus has always been the focus and the fulfilment of both the temple and the law. But I wonder for us, I wonder, do we ever make the same mistake? that the Sanhedrin have. And maybe relationship with God. But I wonder how many of you have ever thought this. Just need to go back to house party or camp. And then I'll be able to get my relationship with God back on track. Or I just need to go to church more, to small group more. And then I'll be able to meet with God and know him better. 
Now, those times are really important to us and to our faith. And I'm not knocking them in the slightest. And I would encourage you greatly to come to church and to go to small group and to come to house party and meet with other Christians and, and learn more about Jesus. And it's been a pleasure to see many of you grow in your faith through these things. But because they are so great, uh, we, can have, we can very easily develop a belief that, is where, that that is where we need to be to meet with God. Well, if that is you, I've got some great news for you. If you're thinking to yourself, I just need that to be able to get my relationship with God back on track. I've got something that I hope will be a great encouragement for you. The same Jesus is everywhere with you all the time. You just need to go to him. It's not a place that you need to go to. It's, it's a person that you, have to, that you need to go to to have a relationship with God. And that was true in Stephen's day. And it's true for us as well. All right, I want you to turn um, either into your groups or to the person sitting next to you. We're going to have group time a bit different today. And I just want you simply to discuss what do you think about what I've said? What has struck you? What has been helpful? What do you not understand? Just have a bit of time discussing it so far. And then we'll come back in a few moments and we'll look at the second charge that's laid against you. That's the button, Dave. Um, okay, so we're going to move on now and look at the second charge uh, at the second charge that is laid against Stephen. Um, and Stephen moves on and he tackles his charge uh, that has been laid against him. It's, it's the one that has been saying that he's been dis- dis- that he's disregarded the law that Moses has handed down to them from God. The way that they believe that they were supposed to live uh, and meet with God. But instead of simply explaining what he has been saying, he answers them by showing from Israel's history that it's them, not him, who have not followed the law. Uh, the law and the prophets have always been rejected by God's people. And that the Sanhedrin, they are no different. And that is again because they put themselves right at the centre of it and not Christ. So let's go back to the history of Israel that Stephen shows us. And um, Simon McCormick... Would you be able to do me a favour? Would you be able to read for us the verse that's on the screen? Absolutely. Thanks. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words. That's the law to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods that will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hand had made. Okay, so as soon as the Israelites received uh, Moses and the law, they refused to obey they turned their hearts back to Egypt, back to where they'd been rescued from, and they rejected their rescuer and leader Moses, and they worshipped an idol. And this isn't a one-off. Uh, they have a track record of disobeying the law and rejecting their leader and rescuer. To, um, to chapter 7, verse 9, we read that God's people, even when they were simply just a household... Um, rejected the one that would rescue them. 
Joseph. Uh, They rejected him, they sold him into slavery, and they lived as though he were dead. But it was through Joseph that when the famine struck, they were rescued. They rejected the one that was sent to rescue them. Back to Moses in verse 25. They didn't realise, they didn't see, sent them in Moses. And in verse 35, when we go on a bit further, they've been rescued from the promised land. And this is the same Moses whom they have rejected with words. Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And again, after being taken out of Egypt, they reject the one who is their rescuer, who's been sent to be their ruler. In verse 37, um, we read that Moses says that God is going to send them a prophet like him. To rule and to lead them. And Moses' point is this. If you treated me like this, then no doubt you will treat them just the same. And it's Stephen's point as well. And of course, that is exactly what they did when the prophet turned up. It is at this point that Stephen turns the tables, his well-reasoned defence and explanation for what he's been teaching about Jesus to a full-on attack on the Sanhedrin as he takes everything from Israel's history and he applies it to them. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You have always resisted the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. You say that I'm the lawbreaker, the law that points to, the points to a prophet like Moses, to Jesus. It's you that have not obeyed the law, not me. And that is what you've always been like. You're wrong. You're wrong about the temple, and you're wrong about the law, because you've missed what it is all about. And what is the, the point that it centres on? It's not what we do, and it's never been about what we do. It's always been looking forward and centred on a prophet like Moses, sent to rescue and to redeem us, Christ. Your focus is to get to know God. If you had really understood and accepted the law and loved it, if you had really obeyed it and not rejected it, then you would have expected a prophet like Moses to come And you'd have been truly waiting for Jesus. And you wouldn't have killed him when he did. If you had really read and understood the law that tells you how God wants you to live, you would have understood that however good you are, however hard you try, you could never be good enough. And you would have realised that you needed a rescuer, a righteous one, who can fulfil the law for you, and who, in his death and his resurrection can forgive you and offer you life. This is the mistake that many of us can make today as well, isn't it? And we can think that our best, that on our own, that will be good enough. If we try a little bit harder, that will get us to God. I know quite a few of my friends think that. But here we learn that it just doesn't work. It will never work. It never has worked and it never will. But I want you to be encouraged 
Because actually the answer is even simpler than just doing good stuff and living really well. It's easier than that. I know for me, times when I've sinned, when I've lived the way that God doesn't want me to live, I've really struggled to come to God in prayer until I've sorted it. I wonder whether any of you guys are like that. But here we learn that no matter what you've said or what you've done, or what you've not said and you've not done, and no matter how long it was until you had a decent quiet time, none of this qualifies you or disqualifies you from coming into God's presence with confidence. Because Jesus Christ is the prophet like Moses who lived the law for you so that you can freely come to God. Well, the Sanhedrin, they don't like what they hear. Uh, and just like uh, they did with the prophets, just like they did with Jesus, they killed Stephen. And a man called Saul, and a man called Saul is there giving approval to his death. Uh, as the charges that are given um, against Stephen are very much like the ones... Is that, is that something I'm doing? Okay. Uh, just as the charges that are laid against Stephen are very much like the ones laid against Christ. That he's blasphemed. After also suffering a very biased court with false witnesses, he dies in very much the same way, praying to God. And now we've covered an immense amount this morning. But as you go, I just want you to leave you with this one more encouragement. There's one more verdict to come in the passage that we've read. As the crowd order the death of Jesus, uh, the death of Stephen, Jesus stands to welcome his servant home and to give him life. Life. The temple and the law all point and centre on Jesus Christ, who brings life. And life is not about what we do or where we go, but it's simply about who we know and who we go to. Jesus. Now, I want you just to turn back into your groups and, again, just have a bit of time discussing what has struck you from what we've learned this morning. Uh, what is something that you're going to take away? Um, things on those lines. And then it'd be, I think it would be great for us to, just to pray together, to pray that um, as we go out into our daily lives, to know that Jesus is at the centre of everything. So the things that go wrong, whether at school or at home, how can Jesus help us with that? If he's the centre of life, he, he must be able to. So do you want to just turn back into groups and then um, we'll see if there's enough time left for us to finish with the song.